0: This program is a production of the Reformed Forum, an organization devoted to producing and distributing Reformed theological content for a connected age. Online at reformedforum.org. This is Christ the Center, episode number 223. Today we speak with Dr. Richard B. Gaffin, Jr. and Dr. Lane Tipton about baptism. Welcome to Christ the Center, Doctrine for Life, your weekly conversation of Reformed Theology. This is episode number 223, and my name is Camden Busey. I'm very excited to be here in studio with a number of people to speak about a very important subject, but let me introduce to you all of our participants today. First, we have to my right, uh, Jared Oliphant, who is regional coordinator for Westminster Theological Seminary. He's working out of Charlotte, North Carolina, but he's here today in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Welcome back to the program, Jared. It's great to have you.
1: Thanks, Camden. Good to be in studio. Yeah, time. it's
0: fun. In front of all the cameras, we're doing some yeah. more of our video experiments, uh, seeing how how this all works out. So we're sharing a seat together here. Uh <laughs> if you can watch us on uh online uh, you'll see what we're talking about. But we're also very excited to welcome to the program uh, Dr. Lane Tipton, who is Professor of Biblical and Systematic Theology here at Westminster Theological Seminary. Welcome back, Lane. It's great to have you.
2: Thank you so much. It's wonderful to be
0: here. We're really excited to have you in studio, but we're especially excited to have our special guest, uh, Dr. Richard B. Gaffin, Jr., who is Professor of Biblical and Systematic Theology comma, emeritus at Westminster Theological Seminary. He's joining us again uh, for uh, what we hope will be a wonderful conversation. Welcome back, Dr. Gaffin. It's wonderful to have you.
3: Thanks. It's good to be here again.
0: Yeah. Today we want to speak about baptism, which is uh, a subject that's very important uh, to our understanding of Scripture and uh, our understanding of ecclesiology and our practices within the Church. Uh, But the arguments presented uh, are not always... uh, the strongest. <laughs> and so today we want to uh, march through uh, an understanding what we think is a more compelling and convincing understanding of paedobaptism, baptism as we analyze uh, various critiques um, and criticisms from. Uh, various uh, credo-baptists or believers' baptism camps. Uh, But before we get into that, I do want to mention, of course, that Christ the Center is listener-supported, and we rely on the generous support, both prayerful and financial, uh, of all of our listeners uh, to help us to continue to produce and distribute all of our programs free of charge. So I would encourage you, if you're able and willing, please visit us online at reformedforum.org slash donate. To pledge your support today. We thank you so much for your support of everything we do at Reform Forum, and this program in particular, Christ the Center. And gentlemen, um, Jared helped set this up, and it was his initial idea uh, to have this discussion. Uh, of course, it's, it's always at the forefront whenever we talk about evangelicalism, because there are different strands of it, different historical traditions. And um, unfortunately, many times when we uh, engage with the issue or when people engage in the issue they they can sometimes set up straw men and, that, and that's unfortunate they can set up weak arguments just in order to tear them down uh, so there are some uh seemingly compelling uh, credo baptist arguments that come from a covenantal position because of course when we talk baptism we come down to hermeneutics in our view and understanding of the bible and uh, when a Paedo-Baptist here is an argument for believers' baptism that's not coming from a covenantal perspective. It's just falling on deaf ears. It really has no merit whatsoever. But yet there is a version of credo-baptism coming from uh, historically from figures like Polking Jewett uh, and other professing and confessing Baptists of, of recent vintage uh, that seems to be more in line with the traditional Reformed view of uh, uh, the Covenant of Grace and uh, traditional, more traditional reform views of election and whatnot. So, we're going to try to dive into that uh, today. Um, Dr. Gaffin, as we get started, one of the main issues uh, in terms of our view of the Bible comes down to an issue of continuity and discontinuity. In your class uh, that you've taught for so many years, uh, ST 101, you speak about. Uh, that continuity I believe in Hebrews 3 uh, with Moses being a servant in the Lord's house but Christ being you know the the ruler basically of the house the uh, Omega consummator of the house if we want to talk Kalenian, uh language um, but for me uh, the Pado baptist argument really centers and hinges upon some things that Paul teaches in Romans chapter 4 um, how do you understand Romans 4 as presenting a more continuity view, uh, saying that the New Covenant has much in common with uh, the way that the Lord dealt with Abraham, for instance. Yeah.
3: <clears throat> I, I appreciate the way that you've uh, <clears throat> focused that question. If I, if I could uh, take a few moments um, and address it in terms of uh, a story,
0: yeah, um, we do some narrative
3: theology. <laughs> Please, watch Adam and boy. Eve
0: were historical. That's the important part.
3: <laughs> now actually, this is an incident that happened on campus here at Westminster decades ago now. And um, uh, it was, uh, there was a conference on this issue of uh, credo or pedo-baptism that was put on by, as, as I recall at that time, a student body. And uh, one of the speakers um, at that time, a younger pastor, I won't identify him by name uh, because I haven't uh, checked with him, but if I did mention his name, um, uh, many of uh, viewers would recognize uh, him uh, as a very prominent Reformed Baptist, and I would just say, uh, before I say anything else, someone who I have greatly admired and so appreciated his uh, ministry. Over the years uh, but uh, what I wanted to get to uh in in that uh, conference uh, as this uh, pastor made a presentation he took us to Romans 6 and there uh he identifies he put he pointed out as paul does there uh what baptism signifies and seals and um, as uh Many, I'm sure, will be aware uh, the gist of what Paul says is that baptism signifies and seals union with Christ in his death and resurrection, or as as I think uh, a a better way of putting it, it signifies and seals union with the exalted Christ, uh, uh, who is what he now is uh, in all of his saving benefits and efficacy. And uh, the point, then, uh, that uh, the, the Reformed Baptist pastor wanted to make is uh, we um, Baptists, we look at Romans 6 and what it teaches about the high significance of baptism. And uh, we say, how would we—let uh, de- me back up just a second. And he pointed out properly that these benefits of baptism, of, uh, of un- that come from union with Christ, come through a union that is established by faith. It's faith that bonds us uh, to the exalted Christ, so that what he, uh, the salvation uh, that he has secured for us, are, are re- for his people, those benefits are received in being united to Christ by faith. Uh, so he pointed out, uh, the, this is the significance of baptism, and so how would we dare begin to think of applying that to an, uh, an infant who is incapable of faith? Well, that was very helpful to me uh, because it helped me focus, um, I think, uh, an important point in this whole de- de- debate about uh, infant baptism because it struck me as I listened to him, and I agreed entirely with the way in which he was exegeting uh, Romans 6, uh, but my reaction was, now, if Abraham had reasoned the way this pastor was, he would have said, "Uh, no, Lord, look at what circumcision signifies and seals. How could I begin to apply that? uh to my eighth day old uh
0: mm-hmm. male
3: offspring. And that bring this is you can see a kind of, I'm been getting to Romans four.
0: No, it's a, this uh, is wonderful.
3: Because you see if you if you back up there, what Paul says in Romans four, um
0: I want everyone to note that Dr. Gaffin's looking up the passage on an iPod touch.
3: <laughs> yeah well <laughs>
0: Quick access to Greek, Hebrew, and English.
3: Right. <laughs> yeah. Some of us managed to keep up a little bit. Uh, <laughs> some of us aging managed to keep up a bit with the technology. But um, <laughs> he, uh, he says there uh, that um, – well, let me read Romans 4, uh, 11 mm-hmm. and following. And he, uh, Abraham received circumcision as a sign – a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. So then he is the father of all who believe but have not been circumcised in order that righteousness might be credited to them. What I want to just underline now is the way in which Paul identifies circumcision there as a sign, a seal of the righteousness that Abraham had by faith. And the, um, what I've found, it's, it's in fact been fascinating to me. This is not true, I recognize, of, of everyone who maintains a Credo-Baptist position. But I've been fascinated over the years uh, the way in which um, any number of Credo-Baptists have, uh, in effect, glossed Romans 4.11, and they read it as saying that it was a sign and seal of Abraham's faith, which you see is precisely what it does not say. It says it's a sign and seal of the righteousness which is received by faith, and that righteousness of God which is at the heart of the, of of which is, as many will be aware, the focus of the whole of, uh, The main theme in the book of Romans, the righteousness that is uh, the same for old covenant believers and new covenant believers, the only difference being by way of promise or fulfillment. Abraham received the benefits of the salvation that had been secured in Christ, the righteousness of God revealed in the gospel by faith in the promise. We have the privilege of receiving that same uh, righteousness by uh, by faith in the promises that has been fulfilled in Christ. So uh, I've been talking a long while here, and I can see Lane Tipton to my left. He's you know he's anxious to get in here. Uh,
2: I'm just agreeing with what's said. Yeah. I'm well, loving it. He's yeah. almost raising his hands. I'm about to give you an amen, <laughs> Doctor Gaffin. Let,
3: let, let me just add this: that um, I think um, so often, and 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 I understand. What a what a difficult uh, um, barrier it is often for a credo Baptist to get around this point. They they they, they see uh, often how much baptism has meant to them uh, as an act and a profession of their faith. But I, I, I would just encourage our brothers and sisters uh, of, of this mindset. That you see, when you pay attention to what the way Paul puts it there, that baptism focuses on uh, the righteousness received by faith, that it focuses not on the act of faith or, or as a confession of faith, but it focuses on what faith appropriates, it focuses on what God does. Uh, and not what we do in response to what God does. I, I should stop at that point. No, that's
0: helpful just because uh, many times it, it comes down to a perspective on what the sacrament is is it and what its direction is. Is it a sign from man to God of what we have done or our response to what he has done? Or rather, is the sacrament of baptism a sign from God to his people? And I, I, I mean, do you have any follow-up on that? Is that... No,
3: I, I think that, that encapsulates it totally I see. very well.
0: Now, um, let, me, let me ask Dr. Tipton then on, on a, a related point here. Uh, we've talked about, Dr. Gaffin's mentioned the issue of circumcision. We think of uh, Colossians 2, I believe, is the right chapter here when we speak about the connection between baptism and circumcision. Can you speak to the continuity there? Because that's another point of contention. In the Pado baptist argument, the credo Baptist will say, no, 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 we see more discontinuity here between these signs. Um, There are other things we can get into later in terms of progeny, spiritual versus uh, physical progeny. But how can we build a case, and how do you build a case for the continuity uh, between circumcision and baptism as you see it in Colossians 2, for instance?
2: Well, a lot of that depends on how you're going to take... um a genitive in Colossians 2 with regard to the cross of Christ and his circumcision. I think one of the things that, that we can say is that insofar as Jesus Christ and his death on the cross brings into view a circumcision of sorts, a putting off of the body of the flesh, that you find a kind of judgment ordeal involved in his death. The circumcision of the cross as the putting off of the body of flesh is explicitly a judgment ordeal, where wrath is poured out, etc. Likewise, when you're thinking about the significance of baptism, and you think of 1 Corinthians 10.4, for instance, Mm -hmm. the baptism ordeal in the Red Sea uh, had sanctions of blessing for Israel and then sanctions of judgment for the Egyptians. Mm-hmm. And the waters of the Red Sea, remember, of course, closed upon them in judgment. The same baptismal waters, so to speak. The same mm-hmm. baptismal waters uh, brought these uh, different outcomes to bear. Uh, likewise, when you think of 1 Peter 3, 20 and following, um, the baptism, the, the event of, of the flood is likened to baptism that now saves, right? But what happened there? Well, you had, for those in the ark, those waters of baptism lifted them up above the judgment that was poured out upon the earth, and then those who were on the earth perished in a trial by by judgment, a trial by water ordeal. I think one way to talk about the connection between circumcision and baptism is that um, they they involve a trial by uh, either knife, a trial by water, they involve judgment. And later by fire. And later by fire. And I think in the case of, of what, uh, when we're thinking about the Colossians 2, the connection between baptism and um, circumcision, one thing that I think we can say is that both events depict in in various ways the death of Christ and His bearing of curse on behalf of His people, and baptism is, in one way or another, a summons for um, us to identify with the One who has borne away judgment. And and as Dr. Gaffin has already pointed out, and I think very usefully, um, this is a a different way of speaking about a righteousness that comes to us not from ourselves, but is given and received then by faith. Mm-hmm. And so I think you can you can look at some of the symbolic significance of the judgment ordeal involved with circumcision, judgment ordeal involved in baptism, and see the way that judgment is borne by Christ, and we therefore meet judgment um, in him. Now one response uh, to that, uh, point, is that um, why not
0: baptize everyone then? Why why don't we just go about, if it has an efficacy, no matter how it's, I mean, if it, as long as it's administered correctly, so to speak, but it has a blessing upon those who are elect, and it has a curse upon those who partake inappropriately, um, why
2: not just give the sacrament to everyone then? Well, the administration of the sacrament is itself a function of a particularizing covenant. Mm. And when Abraham is called, for instance, and is given the sign of circumcision, of what is that a sign? It is a sign of the righteousness that he has by faith in the promised Messiah. And so the, uh, the dual sanctions are a feature that simply represent the full range of the gospel and the indicative imperative relationship for those who have been called by God out of the world and constituted a pilgrim people and have the visible the sign of the covenant placed upon them, discriminating them from the world. And the, the logic of the of the dual sanction is simply this, as the Westminster Standards say, you can improve your baptism, you can obey and walk by faith, and that is a demonstration of what? that That what has been signified and sealed in baptism is being appropriated in a life of covenant fidelity, or in the case of someone who has been baptized and who turns away from the Lord, there is... By virtue of that baptism, a responsibility that has not been met, and a and um, a curse is upon that person. But but the, but circumcision and baptism, being a sign and seal of union with Christ, of righteousness that is by faith, and all of the benefits of that union, it's a sign of a particularizing covenant. Yeah, yeah,
0: clearly. Um, I'm going to make a, a a point or. Offer a question uh, uh, directed at you. Can, can De- I mean, you just absolutely. Just very Please. quickly,
3: to, uh, uh, just the way you put the question, I and appreciated the way uh, Lane focused and drew our attention yes. to a particularizing covenant, um, particularly with a view toward uh, uh, Reformed Baptist friends, uh, Credo Baptist yes. uh, friends. The, um, the issue see, we are not trying to administer election. Yes in baptism, uh, which I think is basically um, – it raises what, – what comes on the table here, and uh, this uh, – in an adequate discussion of it is for an, another time, is the, is, is the difficult issue of relating election and covenant. You don't want to pull them apart, but you don't want to – Identify can, them fully. You can't and, equate head for yeah, head Yes, everybody in covenant with God with the elect – and uh, but covenant is 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 the administration of God's electing purposes that He is a trust entrusted to His His people, uh, Old Covenant and New Covenant. But um, I think it's helpful uh, in this whole issue to see that the point about uh, election, uh, excuse me, about baptism, is not whether or not. Someone is elect, but whether or not someone is in covenant with God.
0: Yes. Oh, that's so helpful uh, to make that point. Um, you know, and, and related to that, we have uh, this notion of eschatology, and there, we're going to get into a little bit later Jeremiah 31 and Hebrews 6 issues of overrealized versus underrealized eschatology. I'm priming Doctor Tipton for that here, <laughs> but uh, before we get there, I do want to make a few points and and ask for your insights on some issues of redemptive history. Um, you've you've done phenomenal work and very helpful work. Uh, I believe it was back in the 50th anniversary OPC volume, speaking about the the Pilgrim people and the pilgrimage and the, the Sabbath day and and uh, that, that journey that the church is on. Um, having arrived, so to speak, at the heavenly Mount Zion, but not yet having fully arrived in consummated glory. There's an already not yet tension. Um, I want to zone in on the issue of of John the Baptist, and and as particularly the final Old Testament prophet. Um, How are we to understand John's baptism, per se, in relation to the entire sweep of redemptive history what sort of things are similar and what sort of things are different? And and just to provide an additional leading point, I mean, this is an emphasis of yours in the in the Acts and Paul course you taught when you talk about the baptism by fire, etc. Et How are we—I'm just asking you to open up about uh, John as O.T. prophet and then the themes of baptism that we find in Luke, Acts.
3: Yeah, I, I think— I, I... I think it's very helpful appreciate the way you're drawing attention to the Luke-Acts material because I, <clears throat> I think it reinforces the important points um, that Elaine was making already about uh, baptism as having a judgmental or ordeal significance. That's so clear in Luke-Acts. Uh, maybe I could just ma- make this general statement. Uh, we have John's water baptism. We have Christian, New Covenant, water baptism. We have uh, what John's water baptism was a pointer to, which is not a rite, R-I-T-E, but the messianic reality of spirit and fire baptism. And I, I think it's an overall perspective on Scripture uh, in terms of the distinction between promise and fulfillment, uh, anticipation and realization, John's water baptism sign <clears throat> points forward, obviously, in Luke 3, 16. I'm not the one, I baptize with water, the one who comes after me. Uh, uh, who uh, I'm not worthy to uh, untie the sandals of, of uh, carry a sandhole so to speak, yeah. he will baptize. The Messianic one will, will baptize with Holy Spirit and fire. Christian water baptism looks back on that baptism ordeal that Christ himself passed through. Remember how he puts it in Luke 11, uh, 49 and 50. I have a, a baptism to be baptized with and how I am uh, pressured, it's very strong, intense language, Uh, how I wish it were already accomplished. And that's obviously referring, uh, Elaine has already uh, indicated uh, that uh, from the Pauline material uh, to what Jesus experienced in his death, his death in which he bore for us uh, the fire aspect Mm -hmm. of the Messianic uh, ordeal. He took that on himself so that now, uh, the great gift that could come to God's people is is the Holy Spirit, not in in any a uh, destroying way, but as as a blessing, which is realized in on the day of Pentecost. I don't yeah. know if I tried to say too many things. That no, were that's there, very but, uh, good. It's very good. And Of
0: course, yeah. we encourage people uh, to listen to our previous discussions, especially on Pentecost with Dr. Gaffin, because a lot of this material is in there. Um, but of course. Uh, the beauty of this is is that uh, you can rewind <laughs> and listen again. So I appreciate that, Jared. Do you have any points uh, uh, of discussion or questions at this? Maybe, this maybe
1: time? just two things. Yeah. Um, I'd like uh, Dr. Tipton maybe to uh, go on a little further on the Malachi connection that you talk about. Um, in in the prophecy with with yeah. both, uh
2: John the Baptist and and Christ and uh, Isaiah too. As yeah. Well. yeah. Yeah. Um. One, one way to think about John the Baptist's ministry and his baptism is in terms of the uh, omega point of the covenant lawsuit against Israel and that what you find poised against Israel for consistent apostasy against God is judgment. And John's baptism being a baptism of judgment is in one way a sign of a movement from an old covenant, earthly, theocratic form of the kingdom to the realized eschatological form of the kingdom in Christ with its implication of the inclusion of Gentiles. So that John the Baptist is... is, is when John baptizes, it's a baptism that expresses this judgment that is coming upon Israel. When the Son is baptized, when Jesus is baptized, what we recognize is that his baptism is bringing in its full eschatological form this judgment motif to bear upon Christ's own person. So that the transition in from the old to the new is a transition from judgment to salvation judgment adumbrated against Israel in the uh, typological form of a covenant lawsuit that reaches its eschatological zenith in the death of Christ as a baptism
1: mm-hmm.
2: a baptism by fire so that the the future eschatological judgment of God that is currently held in abeyance actually provides the context of his Messianic baptism of death on a cross. Mm. It's the day of judgment, mm. brought future, with a future brought into the present in his substitutionary, wrath-bearing sacrifice. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's
1: excellent. And uh, just to follow up, the other thing that I was thinking was um, your you summarize Paul Jewett's work uh, in class and, and elsewhere, and um, – I see that as really helpful because, you know, as this is kind of zooming out a little bit, but just noting the evangelical landscape right now and kind of the young, restless reformed, you see a lot of people um, cross-denominationally who have a concern for redemptive history, who have a concern for the covenant and are Calvinists. And I think maybe part of what we want to achieve here is to say, how can we be most consistent? With those things that are cross denominational, um, with the issue of baptism, and I think Jewett helpfully represents kind of what's out there on on the Credo Baptist side. So, wondering if this maybe backing up a little bit, but you know, so that we understand kind of the best of the the Credo argument, maybe summarizing a little bit of what he's getting at and how that relates to current studies.
2: Well, sure, he, he would take what I think uh, Jewett would take what Doctor Gaffin and I have uh, have said. And he would say, look, the, the the meaning of circumcision is to be put in the context of of the movement in redemptive history. This is infant baptism in the covenant of grace, uh, Jewett. And he would say that the movement in redemptive history is what paedo-baptists deny. We're static, Parmenidean, something like that. We have no sense of movement in the dynamism of redemptive history. And what what, uh, he suggests is this, that the significance of circumcision is twofold. That circumcision implies or involves entrance into an earthly, national, visible covenant, the old covenant. And insofar as it involves entrance into that earthly, theocratic realm, It involves all of these external social, political, temporal blessings, blessings in the land, blessings of long life, and so on. He says also, and and you are in that arrangement simply by birth, hence the sign is to be applied to those who by birth enter into that covenantal arrangement and have a right to all of the land privileges and so on. Ethnic Israel. Ethnic Israel. It's a sign of ethnicity and incorporation into the visible theocracy and all of its earthly benefits, all of its visible, tangible benefits. He says, however, also in addition to that, circumcision is symbolic of faith. And Dr. Gaffin is right that this is a trend even in Jewett to talk about circumcision not as a sign of something that God does in terms of reckoning faith, but a sign of faith itself. And and by faith, you can receive... Um, intangible, spiritual benefits. So by faith, in terms of circumcision, you can receive the secret, invisible, spiritual blessings that are set over against the public, open, observable, visible, tangible benefits. Circumcision has that twofold significance. Jewett would say when you move from the old into the new— that circumcision corresponds to baptism only with reference to the invisible spiritual benefits that are given to old and new covenant saints alike, and that what falls off entirely are outward, visible, physical benefits in terms of the new covenant. And the, the there's a very strong kind of bifurcation between physical and spiritual, outward and inward. And he says the continuity is on the inward only, not at all on outward. And so that's kind of a hermeneutical uh, move where he says, look, if you want to be a Pato baptist you have to say that the land promises, for instance, have to still be in effect, that baptism would symbolize and signify that. And that's the way he sets it up.
0: Dr. Gaffin, um, before we move on, I want to get into Hebrews 6 and Jeremiah 31 on that point, but, um, of course, uh, you just mentioned, uh, Gerhardus Voss, uh, a few days ago here at Westminster for, uh, the, the Gaffin lecture, and you spoke about his, you know, his 150th birthday, what would have been, and, um, You brought up some very interesting points, uh, and one thing that Voss is so keen on maintaining is this organic unity of all revelation, that we shouldn't espouse some sort of surprise hermeneutic, or we should not be reading the Old Testament in a univocally Jewish fashion either. Um, But Christ is really present in there. Uh, Clowney develops this thought, especially in typology and preaching, and he has what has become known as Clowney's Triangle. Um, how are we to understand just Old Testament types in general to their uh, to, to the relationship to their anti-type, basically? Because what I find in the Credo-Baptist the Credo argument coming from Reform folk often is that the Old Testament sign related to a reality, but basically um, it needs to be transposed to a New Testament sign before it can relate to so to speak, to the New Testament fullness. Which, So put it this way, if we draw a triangle, uh, the Old Testament point would be um, uh, on one end. There's no hypotenuse. For, for, for many uh, credo-baptists, there cannot be an organic relationship of an Old Testament sign to the New Testament spiritual reality. It has to transpose itself first through Christ before it can go up. How are we supposed to understand types? And their relationship, their substantial relationship to what they what they signify.
3: Yeah, um, I, I I hear your question. Um, at least as I want to respond to it, I, yeah. sort of to link in uh, on what Lane was also just saying. Um, but more generally, I w- and I would say this is where you f- you mentioned Voss. Yeah, um, always important to bring him into any <laughs> discussion. Um, <clears throat> I think as his work shows, where does he develop his answer to just the question that you're asking? Well, it's in his uh, his volume on the teaching of the book of Hebrews. Oh, yes. And um, see, I think it is, that's uh, – that's not by accident, not that you couldn't address other materials, as have already come out in our discussion, but it seems like the writer of Hebrews is particularly intent on, um, on establishing both the continuity and the discontinuity between old and new, and he does that in terms of a typology. That is focused uh, primarily on the Priestly identity of Christ. If you make mm-hmm. a distinction, prophet, priest, and king, uh, it, it's 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 uh, without in any way pulling those. Uh, it's a one threefold office yeah. as we. Uh, Hodge our...
0: type way to do it, mm-hmm.
3: well, he he does focus on the priestly and and particularly on on the heavenly high priestly ministry of Christ. His present uh, priestly uh, uh, intercession, and um, as 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 he. But he that focus carries broader principles, which are um, can be captured in terms of the distinction between shadow and fulfillment or reality. And in a way, the shadow is is nothing of itself, and yet it is given its uh, shadowy efficacy. In view of the reality that uh, that the shadow that's cast forward to who who Christ is, so that um, um, in a way, on the the, uh, continuity discontinuity question, uh, the writer of Hebrews is saying. Uh, it can appear he 's saying two quite contrary things, but they I think they come together in in this shadow reality typology on the one hand he 's saying uh, because a shadow in and its, of itself is nothing mm-hmm. it 's an all or nothing difference between old and new um, uh, there's no Christ in the sense of having actually arrived in history uh and 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 accomplished the redemption that he did once for all. Uh, on the other hand, in terms of covenant administration, um, it's it, there. There's a fundamental uh, continuity. I just pick up on what you mentioned much earlier. The way in which uh, he develops things in uh, chapter three, verses one through six, God has one house-building, covenant-constructing project at work in redemptive history, uh, and in that one house. Moses, verse 5, standing for the whole Old Covenant order, Moses is a servant of the things that would be spoken, which are those things that have been declared in word and deed in, 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 the, in, in the person and work of Christ. Yeah. There's um, only
0: one house. There's only one olive tree, Romans 11. We don't find God with multiple projects going on, but different administrations. And one thing that I think is very helpful in the Confession, it speaks about uh, the grace that is administered to these Old Testament saints. Uh, Really, what they're receiving are the same spiritual benefits, the same grace, the same substantial grace coming from the same work of Christ. They're just receiving it in anticipation of the work he would come to do. But it's not as though circumcision administered a different Savior, or a different Messiah or a different Christ or a different person or work. But yet it's a it's the same substantial grace, but yet administered differently mm-hmm. in anticipation. I think for me that's a that's a very compelling argument for continuity and a very compelling argument already that fits in with the treatment of Colossians two we've seen. Would would
1: an overstatement be that the continuity is in the application and, and the discontinuity would be in the accomplishment or the, I guess, administration, which yeah, you've already said.
3: That's that's very helpful. I, I take it that this uh, – a number of uh, viewers, listeners would mm-hmm. be aware of the distinction between Historia Salutis and Ordo We hope so Salutis. by now. Yeah, we're trying, yeah. <laughs> and see, I think that's uh, – Jared, that's what I heard you raise. Yeah. See, that's – I think it's very important to focus things this way. In terms of Ordo Salutis, or in other terms, the uh, ongoing application of redemption. Uh, There's a a, a fundamental continuity. Mm -hmm. It's true that continuity gets heightened because our privilege is not the privilege of Abraham, David, or any other Old Covenant believer. We now have our redemption applied by union with the Christ who is now, in fact, exalted. That wasn't true for Abraham, uh, Old Covenant believers. But on the other hand, uh, you know there is that fundamental uh, uh, continuity. Uh, how does Paulus make the case for justification by faith? He doesn't. Well, he could and does it in point to himself. But in his in his magisterial argument in Romans four, it's by uh, pointing to Abraham and David. Entrance of the law makes no difference. It's all one it's it's an it's an essentially identical uh, appropriation application but at the order of um of 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 historia salutis or once for all ac- accomplishment there is the radical discontinuity
0: yeah that's so helpful
3: but i mean i i went on and on mm-hmm. there just the way jared put it i no, think it encapsulates no. it very no, i'm just
1: repeating what you said in
0: the
3: past so. <laughs> <laughs> credit
1: back to you dr Gavin. yeah, yeah.
0: Now, on that point of Romans 4, several years ago, when I was struggling through uh, these issues, uh, trying to come to my own conclusions and my own convictions, uh, I was raised in a Reformed uh, environment, but uh, yet in college and and uh, just after college, I was attending a Calvinistic Baptist type church. Wouldn't let me be a member because I wasn't baptized again, and I refused to, and, and you know unless I was convinced. So I worked through a lot of these issues, and uh, there's some serious uh, arguments to deal with. And I remember coming back to Romans 4:11. It seemed like such a, such a linchpin uh, to me. It was it was that. That's where it's at, the, the continuity, uh, uh, which argues for the pato baptism But yet, John Piper would responds to that argument, saying that, well, look at Jeremiah 31. He says, the new covenant is not like the old. How uh, are we to understand what Jeremiah is saying in light of uh, covenantal membership and uh, eschatology? I'll
2: give that one to Dr. Tipton. <laughs> you're going to give it to the the, the man with the, the the good answers. Um um one way to think about it is is this that when when I've found this to be the case fairly consistently and I, I want to say very consistently when I read um Credo Baptist that they read Jeremiah 31 31 through 34 as anticipating a time in which there will not be a meaningful distinction between election, regeneration, and covenant membership. Oh right, of course. So that what Jeremiah envisions is the realization on the credobaptist read is a realization um, in history where distinctions or disjunctions among the categories of covenant, election, and regeneration do not exist. Everyone will know the Lord. They will all be taught by the Lord. And therefore, this distinction that you have between a Jacob and an Esau, or where covenant is broader than election, or covenant is a wider concept or reality than regeneration, that's going to pass away. Now, one of the concerns that I have with that is when that very text is referenced in Hebrews 8, 7 and following, and you have a unit, basically, from 8-7 to the end of chapter 10. What the author of Hebrews does with that very text is exhort the church about the real danger of apostasy, of being sanctified by the blood of Christ, Hebrews ten twenty six and following. And treading him underfoot and expecting nothing but a fearful expectation of judgment by which God will destroy the adversary. In other words, the author of Hebrews, when he sees that text being realized, he does not engage in the conflation move of making election, regeneration, and covenant coextensive, mutually exhaustive realities. Instead, he exhorts... And he he brings the if we could put it this way, the, the hortatory force of the subjunctive, the concern to exhort, is heightened now. So not simply hypothetical. It's 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 real. It's real. It yeah. and it's heightened now yeah. given realized eschatology. And so what I think happens with the Reformed Baptist reading of Jeremiah thirty one, thirty one through thirty four, and it's old testament context is they read it and they mistake its, its fulfillment in the new covenant. They read it in Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34 and expect in the already that there will be no distinction now between covenant, election, and regeneration. That's true only in the future realized form new heavens, of new earth. a new yeah. heavens and new earth. But until Christ returns, there is a real threat that those who are in the covenant in the words of John might be of us but go out from us demonstrating they were never really with us in in the beginning so that in the the bottom line is i think that that kind of argument from the reformed baptist or credo baptist camp it it reads jeremiah 31 with an overrealized eschatology that cannot do justice to the exhortations, and the reality of apostasy present in Hebrews 6, Hebrews 8 through 10, and climaxing there in 10, 26 through 31.
0: I think that's an excellent point. We're not saying that we want to disagree with that read of Jeremiah 31 per se. It's just not fully realized yet, though it right. will be. We can't entirely identify uh, election and covenantal membership in this age of an overlap, meaning there's an already not yet. When Christ returns, there's no non-regenerate members, you know, walking around Mount, heavenly Mount Zion. It's well, let me start yeah. put this <laughs> way.
2: Only in eternity past, in the Pactum Salutis, and in the post-consummation phase of Christ's kingdom, do covenant, election, and regeneration, as it were, perfectly overlap. Yeah. Now, of course, regeneration from the decree standpoint as a future certain reality, but in between any time you deal with history from fall until Christ's second coming there is always a broad circle of covenant and a narrower circle of election regeneration and existential union with Christ by faith mhm and and you know to put a point on
0: it just again to put it another way <laughs> then we we could say to a cradle Baptist, how can you account for Hebrews 6? What, what's going on there? A Calvinist cradle Baptist. Right? A Calvinist Hermanians cradle Baptist. Really we're, we're not speaking about dispensational yeah. um, uh, cradle Baptists at this point. We have, would have other issues to deal with before. I'm speaking about people that would identify themselves in some sort of covenantal identity that re- want to read the Bible redemptive historically, Uh, to a point, but yet still hang on to a Credo-Baptist position. I would encourage, I would exhort myself to say, what does Hebrews mean? Do we have a category for understanding these passages, or are they simply hypothetical,
2: but the language just won't sustain the hypothetical argument, will it? Well, I don't want to put him on the spot, but the best I've ever heard was in a class entitled The Theology of Hebrews (laughs) that Dr. Richard B. Gaffin, Jr., the... uh, Professor of Biblical and Systematic Theology, comma, Emeritus, uh, <laughs> taught in 1998, and his treatment of yeah. Hebrews 6 was uh, very useful.
0: Uh-huh. Yeah, could uh-huh. you follow up on that a little bit? Maybe not, it doesn't have to be in detail, but how are yeah. we to understand those exhortations? <laughs> in a few minutes. <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah, uh,
0: and then we'll con- we'll Once they get
2: you here, Dr. Yavin, they're going to try to
0: we've, keep We've you. <laughs> come to our you know, our climax yeah. here. I just want to get your final thoughts. Uh,
3: before, uh, before we, uh, could, uh, could, I, could I just make a comment? Oh, whatever, on, yeah. On, uh, on Lane's very helpful... Uh, survey of, uh, uh, of discuss- comments on Jeremiah thirty-one passage, and this kind of connects with mm-hmm. uh, the question, uh, focusing question of Jared. Uh, I'm going to make I'm going to make an, a, st- a statement that um, uh, I hope I, I make it because I, I believe it will be helpful to some. I think yeah. to others it will appear to be question begging, but okay. uh, think about it. Uh, <laughs> see, I think that what uh, and and what I'm prompted to. Um, to say this because of the way in which the writer of Hebrews handles the Jeremiah 31 passages, as as Lane has been directing us to. Uh, Here's sort of the the categorical mouthful. Uh, Jeremiah 31 is making a redemptive historical point or a historia salutis point in ordo salutis language. Now, see, I Hmm. think... um, in other words, he's making a point of, um, if, the, if that Latin is not helpful to you, uh, John Murray's book, Redemption yeah. Accomplished and Applied. In other words, he's making a point about once-for-all accomplishment, but in terms of um, it, its uh, its benefits, yes. uh, the new heart. Uh, but you see, as Lane has already pointed out, what the writer does is not, when he ad, when he advances, when he see his point at the end of, of eight, just after he has um, uh, cited Jeremiah thirty one, is speaking of a new covenant. He makes the first one obsolete. What is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away, and and what is is ready to vanish away. See, that's making basically a redemptive historical point. And as as Lane has already pointed out, uh. The writer then doesn't see the fulfillment of Jeremiah 31 as bringing about a head-for-head equivalent between covenant and election, or covenant and regeneration, being in covenant and being regenerated. Uh, So in other words, you have to read – see, I think he's making a manifestly redemptive historical point at the end of chapter 8, and then if you're going to track with the writer – uh, into what he has says in chapter 10 or back in chapter six, um, to, to, uh, to appreciate that he, he is not, um, he, it's farthest from his thinking to suggest that his, well, his teaching, uh, that, um, that there's some kind of identity between head for head identity between the covenant members and, and those who are elect. And, um, I think all, uh, and the other side of that uh, um, is you cannot help but read the Psalms and recognize that normative uh, Old Covenant religion, Abraham, um, many of the Psalms, the normative Old Covenant religion comes out of the new heart, the Ordo Salutis reality that is dependent in its uh, in, in, in Abraham being a man of faith, a, a regenerated person of faith, which is dependent on the work of Christ uh, still to come in the future for its efficacy. Okay, now you want to talk about uh, um, wrong, uh, Hebrews 6. Um, yeah, well, uh, I, I guess... The point of departure, as much as any, I don't think it's helpful to see it as somehow hypothetical. Um, you, 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 uh, you're just not dealing with the text if you don't see uh, that the writer here is addressing uh, the whole congregation, all who are confessing Christians, uh, as he uh, as he says, four fourteen. Since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the son of God, let us hold fast our con- let us hold fast our confession. Lane already made the very helpful point about the hortatory uh, subjunctive there. So, uh, that's all through Hebrews. Now, uh, see, it's that us who three thirteen, where uh, the writer says, take heed lest there be in any one of you. Very specifying, and it's not a general. He's putting his finger on every listener, every confessor. You, singular, take heed lest there be in any one of you an evil and unbelieving heart. In uh, the it's the Greek uh, from which we get our English word apostasy. Unless, unless you fall away uh, from the living God, and and just. Uh, i think uh hebrews 6 then just brings those um uh all that exhortation which you remember what the, is what the book of hebrews is all about it's a word of exhortation he says so 13 uh, uh 22 um and 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 that exhortation um is 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 it, it, it's it's what ch- i think chapter 6 is best addressed um or what is seeking to express is those who share in benefits, uh, as F- Philip Hughes says in his commentary: a unified experience of evangelical grace uh, by covenant administration. Um, it's uh, it's that the description there is true of all, and yet some. And obviously, from a larger biblical perspective, who are not elect, who are not regenerate, uh, do fall away. But it's addressed to the whole congregation, and I can't just leave it there because it's addressed to the whole congregation to draw their attention away from themselves and to focus in faith on their high priest in heaven, whoever lives to make intercession for them. And those who do that can be sure they will never, never fall away.
0: Yeah, And so, hence, if we take Hebrews seriously and the language of Hebrews is real and applicable to those whom it's directed at. You know, one, one way to
2: just encapsulate mm-hmm. and summarize this is that the I have seen what, what, what Dr. Gaffin's presentation and the comments I made assume is that from between Christ's first and second coming, Between those two points that define this epoch, there remains a formal versus vital distinction in the administration Mm -hmm. of covenant grace. And the Credo Baptist takes the language of Jeremiah 31 to say the formal is the vital, the vital is the formal, and everything that Dr. Gaffin just so wonderfully summarized demands that that distinction continue lest you evacuate the word of exhortation of its real application to the church.
0: Yeah, I think that's an excellent point to to wrap up on, the formal vital distinction. And it all comes down, uh, again, we're presupposing a redemptive historical view. I mean, we'd have to do some other work to, to lay that foundation. Again, we've done so in previous episodes, but for those of you who are interested in or or persuaded by a, a, a covenantal credo baptism I hope this has been helpful and we would encourage you and exhort you to um to look at Hebrews and and to see how Uh, some of those passages can cohere in such a model. So if you have any questions, please uh, visit us online at reformedforum.org. We'd be more than happy uh, to comment with you uh, on this episode. But also, if you'd like to email us, you can email us at mail at reformedforum.org. And uh, we always enjoy hearing uh, your comments and questions, uh, so we'd appreciate them. Uh, Also, we should mention Westminster Theological Seminary. wts.edu, and you can get a hold of Jared through some of those routes if you'd like. Uh, but we always appreciate uh, the wonderful help and support we've received from them, uh, offering us a space to record and making uh, discussions like this very possible. So again, visit us online, and uh, we want to thank everybody for listening, and we hope you join us again next time on
2: Christ the Center.